Welcome to Fired Up Friday. I'm Gerard Papa, Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt and Principal Consultant at Dynamic Resolutions Group, DRG. Have you heard the old saying, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing right the first time? Well, I not only believe this, but I live it every day. My goal was to help the business world embrace it. I have process improvement and strategic planning expertise, and I seek opportunities to tackle challenges with a focus on innovation, efficiency, and quality. I have over 25 years of customer service experience in the hospitality, retail, IT, and healthcare industries. Okay, this is Henry. Dr. Kaminsky, thanks for joining. I will be discussing topics that fire me up, and today's topic is the state of healthcare, a physician's perspective, and I am pleased and thrilled to have a former colleague, uh, Dr. Kaminsky. He's a professor of neurology and chairman the Department of Neurology at the George Washington University Medical Faculty Association. Give a little bit about yourself, Dr. Kaminsky, that'd be great. Sure, so as you said, I'm the Chairman of Neurology at George Washington University, and um, I'll tell you how I got there. So in 1985, I graduated from Case Western Reserve University and then did my residency. Um, developed an interest in research. So over my career, I've run a basic science uh, research laboratory that attempts to develop new treatments for a, a rare disease, myasthenia gravis, and have developed um, and worked with my colleagues on clinical trials in that disease. And over that, that time, seen thousands of patients with the disease, as well as um, general neurology patients, I worked at the Cleveland VA Medical Center, uh, was chief there for a few years. So I've gotten an appreciation of how a large integrated medical center uh, healthcare system across the country can work. Um, and then I have the opportunity to train residents, medical students, fellows over the years. So. You know, I, as, as chairman, I continue to do research in various ways. I administer the entire department and, and see patients as well, all with the idea of trying to, um, you know, really build a better situation for patient care in my, in my little universe. Right, which is great, and, and we're thankful for that. And I appreciate, again, you joining. So what we decided as we were kind of talking, Dr. Kaminsky and I were kind of talking about, you know, topics for, for this podcast. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I would think there's many things that we actually have uh, in common. And I think we, we understand the complexities of healthcare. Um, I think we understand the challenges that physicians face and especially in, in the leadership role that you're in. So we kind of put an outline together and, and from a, phys a physician's perspective, here's some things that I think, that you can talk to, and then I'll throw in my two cents, but the current challenges in healthcare kind of situation, scenario, the arena, so to speak, is the electronic medical record, the EMR, uh, the current payment system, which is a fee for service, uh, medical school debt, and how that drives uh, physician decision-making and patient care, and then some, how the insurance company fits in there, and then really, uh, focusing on some of the things that you have done, you've touched on a little bit through your career, but you know how you're making a difference and what are your things to success, your keys and your con contributions, um, not only to the MFA, 
but uh, and neurology, but you know, to healthcare in general. Uh, and then the future, you know, what what do you and I think about the future uh, and the solutions and where healthcare is moving towards and some of those things that we're going to talk about? How do they fit in? And and frankly, how are they going to change? Uh, because I think you and I both agree on this that they're going to have to change in some way in order to survive. And so, what does that look like in the next you know twenty five years? Um, so let's start off with the EMR, and I know this is a, a, a topic that physicians love to discuss uh, because it was really, I think, sold as something that was going to make documentation and patient interaction better, and I think you could argue it hasn't. Is that fair to say? Right. So, you know, going to the title of your podcast, Fired Up Friday, I mean, this is really something that annoys me significantly. So I, I pointed out that uh, I graduated in 1985, long, long time ago. Right. But um, the year I graduated and started my internship, we had lab results at the VA delivered to us on pieces of paper, which would then get lost sometimes and you know not transcribed correctly into the written chart um paper notes again we'd have to go look around for the record where is it you know a a lot of clear problems right but what fires me up is that by the time i got to be a senior resident all those little pieces of paper had disappeared we had computers that we could access the the laboratory results very rapidly. We also had begun to start writing electronic notes. Now that's in 1990, and that's at the VA hospital with an open soft or open source software system that you know could have been distributed throughout the country. Was it perfect? No, but it was pretty pretty good. Yeah. And then we'd go over to the university hospital and we'd be back to pieces of paper. And those pieces of paper have, uh, you know, followed me at major academic medical centers um, until, you know, pretty recently. So now, as you said, we've got this electronic record. The good things are that, you know, we can access this at home. We can look at um, CT scan images on patients um, and make emergency decisions um, very rapidly, even if we're not right there to see the patients. Um, and that's true for you know all the specialist care. So that that's great. Um, I think there's fewer errors in looking at lab results, but that they s- still occur. Um, the electronic prescribing overall is a, is a very good thing. We know what's been prescribed and what, and we can get alerts regarding um, inappropriate interactions. Right. But then there's the documentation piece. And, and that's what I think really annoys physicians and compromising, compromises care, right? So if, if you've gone to your physician recently, then you know he's staring, he or she is staring at, the, at their computer screen and clicking away little, little, you know, checkmark buttons or yep. occasionally typing. And, you know, as a physician, you really have to develop an art to do the documentation, look at the patient, and still retain that, that meaningful interaction. And, you know, that's, that's just, 
you know, writing the, the critical piece of what the patient is saying, what kind of problems they have, and then documenting what you think needs to be done next and ordering those tests. So that, that takes time that now a physician is typing as opposed to putting a check on a piece of paper, having somebody else get that moving along and then being able to spend time, more time with that patient. And just as an outrageous kind of thing, you know, some of my colleagues uh, performed simple procedures. And many of them have gone and, you know, documented that it takes 22 clicks right. for them to document a procedure and to submit their billing. And that is just a waste of, you know, valuable physician time. It's not cost effective. Right. It's, so, yeah. yeah. And I think the click piece, and this is where I think a lot of these burdensome requirements, you know, some of the research I've done is is these things that are required to do that probably don't bring any value, but there's some sort of metric behind it that's supposedly going to be tracked, that's supposed to be aligned with patient care, which has, in my eyes, has not been proven. And the more clicks you have, like you said, the less face time you have. And you didn't, and here's, I always say this, you didn't become a physician so you could click on a computer, right? At least I, I think that's the case. I think that is, that is true, but that <laughs> there is this, you know, physicians tend to be, you know, exacting, you know, right. they, they want to master everything. So yes. there's a, a subgroup of people who actually, you know, count those clicks, you know, create a science of it. Maybe they become administrators to reduce clicks but all of a sudden, you're you're studying the science of clicks and not the science of medicine. Exactly, and that's a and that's a great way to say it. I mean that that rolls right into that usability, right? I mean, making something it should enhance your job. And I think when it first thought, here's from a process standpoint in my career, people always think anytime that you make something automated or electronic, it's going to be better. And I think this is a great example of that's not necessarily the case because you said it, you, you take the science away from the science of seeing a patient to the science of the actual EMR and they're totally vastly different things. And that's not where your focus should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think, and every, and I've heard this from multiple physicians and rightly so, because I know where you guys, where your heart is and what, and what you care about. And you see that and it's almost mind boggling, right? I mean, you see all these advances in the world and then you look at this and you're like, it, it doesn't sink. It doesn't make sense. And it's hard to like grasp that because it, it's frustrating from that point. Absolutely. And just, you know, a piece about that. And you know this better than I do. I mean, there's some industries that are extremely complex, right? And yes. require privacy. Yes, the, like, you know, our credit card industry yep. um, and our airline industry in a different kind of perspective. Yet, you know, we can argue that many of them over the years have been much more accurate and much more consumer friendly, especially, you know, ability to access our, you know, checking from our phone. Yeah, it's but, but we can't figure that out in medicine. See, that's it. That's a that's such a great point. And and I and I love that point. And here's why, because other industries are held to that standard. So, for example, you said that now you can 
you can deposit a check by taking a picture of it. You can you can uh, register online for your flight, right? And and download your um, uh, your pass to your phone. Yet medicine is behind on a lot of those little features that would revolutionize these processes that we're talking about. Right. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think uh, just looking at kind of innovations, and I think this is where we have to look at, you know, patient-focused medicine. There's no reason that much of the medical record cannot be kept with the patient in a secure format. Right. And a universal format that then is simply immediately downloaded to a new physician as opposed to, you know, certain medical history and drug use and such being reevaluated each each visit. Well, so, and, and to your and to your point, and, and this is another perspective that uh, that I haven't heard a lot of people say. It then takes the ownership of the patient, so it moves with the patient as opposed to the patient going to it. It's it's more fluid because the patient is the center of that data. And if it stays with the patient, then it goes with the patient. So if the patient goes over here, it goes over here. And it's it's the complete opposite of that because you are reintroducing elements that have already been established every time that interaction takes place. Right. And I just add, you know, I think every patient, regardless of socioeconomic status or culture, they, they want to have ownership of themselves. Yes. Right. Ultimately, yeah. the medical record is is there. Yes, not absolutely. that not that any hospital thinks that way. But, you know, e- even if an individual doesn't really understand the medicine, then now they can, you know, be taught about the key factors of their illness. Well, right? and, and again, if we take this to the next level, it then engages the patient in their health care and their well-being. Right. It takes it yep. to another level because it is with them. It, it, it's not it's not something that's abstract that they get when they go. It is theirs and it's in, it's engaged uh, from their perspective. And if you think about it uh, from a process, again, from a process standpoint, because that's that's you know my experience, that's my experience or my knowledge and skill set, that's the patient should be directing those things. Yes. And I I think, you know, that's where, you know, jumping to the end of this podcast momentarily, that's, you know, I think that's the innovation for the future. Yeah. Well, and and we can we can recap that right at the end. Let's just recap that as a as a summary statement. But if we move on, let's talk because I know this is probably another one of your fired up uh, points is this fee for service and how and how this affects patient care and how this affects what you do uh, from a physician standpoint and a leadership, I might add, because I think you're responsible for the physicians and their billing, obviously, uh, and generating revenue. So how does that fit into like, yeah, you know, so, you know, the the whole um, healthcare system, you know, developed this way, right? This is what we have right now in the United States that um, a physician sees a patient, they get reimbursed by the insurance company or the federal government, or sometimes the patient has to pay themselves. Right. Right. So what's the logical thing to do? Well, you see more patients as quickly as you can, so you can make more money. Well, ultimately 
that's going to deteriorate the quality. Yep. And I'm going to give you a strange um, analogy that just kind of struck me recently. Go ahead. So um, my my 13 year old son and I go went to the same barber shop for you know many years, and uh, he said, you know, this is okay, but I you know I don't think I really get a good experience, and I don't. Um, uh, you know, get much of a haircut. <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, but it's cheap, you know, what the heck, it's a big deal. You know, I'm not going to, not going to spring for a, a big time haircut until recently when I said, okay, I'm going to find a kind of uh, upscale hairstylist. So, so I did. And um, we went to this place. Now they don't take um, appointments. You got to just show up. Okay. But you get your, your name put on a list, and then they tell you, okay, well, you can come back at 10.30. We'll uh, text you uh, a reminder in five minutes before that. You know, there's plenty of things to do around here. Um, you know, sometimes it's delayed by a couple hours. Uh, so then he comes in. He goes, um, gets seated, and he proceeds to have over an hour experience. Wow. Where, you know, he gets his hair washed and the barber is meticulous. And he's almost done. And then he calls him back and says, well, no, this is not perfect. I've, you know, I've got to, you know, you know, modify this a little bit and spends another 10 minutes. And I'm observing all this. And actually, all the barbers are not trying to flip patient, flip, flip clients. Right. Me. Right, they're they, taking care of the ones they have. Yeah, and more so, when they're done, they take some time off, they have a cup of coffee, they talk to each other, and then the next person comes in. Now, he was thrilled with the experience. I think he got an amazing haircut. He didn't mind that he had to wait a little bit. Maybe I did, but that's, that's, that's me personally. Right. But, you know, and we, and we paid more, obviously. Not completely, you know, exorbitantly, but definitely more than the, the standard barbershop where the standard barbershop is just running fee for service. They got to move patients, you know, yep. move people through this volume. It's volume. not. Yeah, it's not a great experience in retrospect. And is it more expensive? Yes, but it's more personable and an overall better situation right now. You know, so I think there's some aspects that apply to medicine. Others, others don't. Right. Um, uh, you know, so so you do have to pay. You know, we, we do have an expense issue. But I think the quality of care, perhaps not perhaps, would make up for that in the long run. If we yeah. spend a little bit more time, we um, were a little bit more thorough we had a chance to think about it as opposed to ordering a bunch of tests and then the patient would ultimately be treated better, maybe not hospitalized, maybe, you know, having problems identified earlier before they get worse. So, you know, I, th I think that's kind of the, the most extreme fee for service comparison that I've ever seen. Well, and let me just, I want to, I want to bring in a quote. This is from the article from, uh, from, a, from Forbes magazine. It's called healthcare is dangerous fee for service addiction. 
925 uh, by Robert Pearl, who happens to be a physician. I'm going to quote this. This is from the Dartmouth Atlas Project. Describe it. In regions where there are more hospital beds per capita, patients will be more likely to be admitted to the hospital. In regions where there are more intensive care unit beds, more patients will be cared for in the ICU. More specialists will result in more visits to specialists, but patients do not experience improved survival or better quality of life if they live in regions with more care. In fact, they care, the care excuse me, they receive appears to be worse. So again, it's like we fill in these voids because we're trying to push people through and make a demand where if we just focused on the patient care, and, he, and you said this too, even the preventive piece too, right? Catching things before sure. they become larger issues, then I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of truth in that. So, yeah, no, I mean, obviously we agree on, on, on these points and I, I think it's important to appreciate it's not necessarily individuals who are saying, oh, we've got to bring that person into the critical care unit because we need to make more money. It's the whole kind of it's system, system and yeah, culture it's system. that develops in certain yes. areas yes. that that drive these things. Yes. And it's very, very hard to change. Culture. Well, and I, and I think this is a very clear distinction. And I think this is very important to make. And I'm glad you made it because it's true. It is a system issue, right? The system is set up to drive that behavior. It's not an individual going, I'm going to send this person to this for this reason, right? Right. It's very true that it is a system and that system is set up. And this is where... This, this is above a process, right? Because you can, only, you can make some process changes, but if the system is driving that behavior, it's going to be really hard to change it. Yeah, and I, I just add one thing about what, what you just pointed out. The one problem is that there are a small number of individuals and small organizations that are, are driving uh, fee-for-service uh, in a uh, fraudulent way, right? And those are the ones that you hear about. Yes, and yes. So then there's this impression, oh my God, the reason Every we have high healthcare costs is because everybody, the doctors, the hospitals are bilking the system, you know, in this, this way. And it, I, it's, that's not the reality, like you said. Yeah, and it's not fair. I yeah, mean, it's not fair to, to paint that broad brush stroke of, of everyone, right? But yep. yes, that, that's another good point too. If, so let's move on because I think these these uh, the next two points I think are really important from a phys physician perspective because I think this highlights um, the situation that physicians are put in um, because of this system and the first one is this medical school debt and how this uh, how this affects uh, patient care and I think generally speaking I don't think people realize this how much school that people have um whether you go to medical school or not but medical school students obviously become physicians and they're have to making critical care decisions but we have a really school debt problem in this country uh and that has to be looked at because it's putting physicians in very precarious situations i think right so um i think you'll quote some numbers in a moment but yeah approximately you know, on average, a graduating medical student has $250,000 in debt. Yeah. And there's no, um, no question that 
that weighs on a person when they're making a choice of what to do with their lives. Yep. And that's because, um, you know, certain professions pay a lot more money than others, right? So yep. dermatologists make a lot of money. Yes. Um, you know, cardiologists make a good amount of money. And so, um, you know, a young person who... Um, who um, needs to make a, a decision about their life with $250,000 of debt, they're going to take a higher uh, paying situation. Yep. As Even if they say, you know, I really love to take care of kids. I want to be a pediatrician. And that is just not especially that's reimbursed well, um, ultimately. So, and it's, it, it creates these, you know, awful, um, uh, factors that the, the graduating student has to and you, use. And you can't blame, you can't blame that person for making that decision, right? Because no. ultimately they have to make the decision that what's best for them and their families, especially if they have families and small children, right? Yep. Care of them. But I want to, I want to add to this point. And there's two elements that I want to talk about um, two recent studies. Uh, and this is, this is from uh, medical school debt and the potential impact on patient care. From March 19, 2013, uh, from uh, Um And what it says is two recent studies have found that debt-ridden medical students and residents are seriously stressed, evidenced by psychological problems, substance abuse, depression, and even suicide. And it says the Journal of the American Medical Association has warned that the malaise could end up hurting patients, right? So that's the first thing because of that money and, you know, Physicians are humans, and they have the same things, uh, same kind of challenges that, that everyone else, and I think this only puts more pressure on them. And the second point is something that you're talking about, how pediatricians are reimbursed and things like that. The level of medical school debt often discourages students from pursuing careers in lower-paying fields like primary care. Students with significant debt often elect more specialties like plastic surgery or obstetrics because they pay more right i mean there you go i mean you have the, the the real statistics there and you know we're we're blending the the school debt quite appropriately with depression and burnout in the field yeah and, that and is, i didn't i didn't list burnout but that's another that's a great another great one to throw in there because that's that's real evidence today too right and so just to to react to a, a couple of these things based on, you know, what I've witnessed and experienced. Um, when you have, and this is true in any field, right? If you have a person that is not enthusiastic about coming into work yeah. is, you know, when they're seeing a patient thinking, you know, how am I going to make this next loan payment? Oh, my wife or my spouse, husband, are on my back because the backyard, you know, needs to get cut or landscaped or exactly. our roof is leaking. And then I have this, they're not paying attention. They're not there what they're supposed to be doing when they're seeing the patient. Right. Yep. And Absolutely. then you couple that with, I've got to see the next person. I'm 20, 30, 40, 60 minutes behind the nurses, you know, pointing out that I'm behind um, and then I have to stay an extra hour to, um, 
take care of my notes on the electronic record. You know, there are the, there's not enough physicians in the United States. And it used to be thought, okay, well, it's a pipeline problem. We just got to get more into the system. Well, the problem is there's a lot of uh, MDs and DOs who are leaving the profession because they, you know, it's, it's not worth it to them anymore. Yep. And there's I plenty of options. Plenty and I of think options. that's right. And I think that, not to interrupt, sorry to interrupt you, but that's another great point, right? Because what happens is they, then they leave the profession, right? Right. And that's, you know, you think about the investment that society has put in them, four yep. years in the undergraduate years. And, um, you know, there are MD, PhDs who's also been trained by the, the federal grants um, during their careers to become clinical scientists. And all of a sudden they're dropping out of that. It's it's a terrible waste of money um, you know, when we don't have the money to waste and we need more healthcare providers. So, you know, that speaks to the innovation as well next time. I mean, for, at the end of this podcast, because we we can't we're, we're not going to give it just suddenly have an extra 10,000 physicians. No. So we have to have right. physician extenders exactly. and, and technology to help out. And that's where we get into the innovation and if we kind of roll in some numbers again, um, there was a survey. This is from Medscape National Physician Burnout and Depression Report in 2018. Carol Peckman, uh, January 17th of 2018, there was, 50, there was a survey. 15,543 physicians from 29 specialties responded. And this was from the um, July 19th, uh, 2017 to uh, October 2nd of 2017. So they had that much time to respond. They reported 42% reported burnout. 12% uh, reported feeling down and depressed. And then 3% uh, were clinically depressed or severe depression. Um, and this is just based on that survey, right? So I would imagine those probably the severe depressed was higher. I would imagine it's higher than 3% um, because those were self right, reported numbers. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and the highest rate of specialties were critical care. Neurology um, was high. I didn't know if you knew that uh, 48% critical care, and 48% were neurology, family medicine, which I would expect to be high. Um, and then uh, OB-GYN, which was at 46%. So Again, I think the ramifications of not only how that changes someone's life, but then how many other people are put in uh, risk because of it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. You know, so there, it's an interesting spectrum of specialties because they're all very different. And I think it points to you know, at least from my viewpoint, different kind of stressors on people. So in neurology, it's a relatively lower paid field. Um, but we, you know, we, we deal with very severe acute problems, but then also devastating um, chronic conditions like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and right. multiple sclerosis. So, so, you know, really difficult conditions. OBGYN you know, um, things can be wonderful, but if they go south on a delivery, that's devastating to everybody involved. Yes, that's very good point. Absolutely. Even 
Yeah, even though the, the you know the reimbursements are our salaries are better in OBGYN, that that doesn't you know account for the real you know significant stressors in that field. Yeah, and the impact I think you said if it goes south, right, um, yep. it could take a very happy moment and and make it devastating uh, yep. as both of complications uh, during pregnancy or during delivery and things like that. So yeah, absolutely, I think that's a really good point. But let, let me say, you know, the American Academy of Neurology and I think all the other subspecialty fields are, are very aware of this burnout situation. And there's been, you know, there's some horrible studies, as you've alluded to, about burnout rates. There's some um, efforts at various institutions to address this, you know, mostly with kind of the support group situation, so to speak. You yeah. Know? you know, let's, let's get together and talk about things, which is, you know, I think is um, a, a good thing to share experiences and to, to learn um, uh, coping mechanisms from other people. Um, but ultimately, it's not really addressing the situation of, you know, the, the drive to um, see more patients. What's created it, to or, begin with, right? What's created the burnout to begin with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because you're just you're talking about it after the burnout took place. And although I yeah. think therapy is helpful, to your point, it's still not addressing how they got to become burned out to begin with. Correct. Absolutely. And that's and that's the important thing. And I think segueing right into this, because this, I think, is one of the reasons why uh, it creates burnout is insurance companies and, and, and the insurance process. Right. And um, because I know that's given me heartburn uh, because, again, when you try and make sense of something uh, from a reasonable standpoint and there is no logic to it, then I think it creates a lot of these things. And I know you've experienced this. So, you know, please kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah, right. So um, there's many levels to this, right? So I, patients don't hear about it from the physician perspective in general. But um, so there's the, the reimbursement, right? So there are certain federally mandated reimbursement rates for, you know, seeing a patient um, as a first new patient or a consultation or in follow-up. Well, you can see another human being, but they happen to be uh, from a insurance company one, and you're getting paid a different amount. And then you have another, your institution has negotiated with another company and you get paid a different amount. Now that's completely, you know, generally unknown um, to any physician provider exactly how much they're getting reimbursed. But there's, it's a little bit nonsensical. Yeah, the variability. Perspective. Yeah, the variability, because you're committing, you're completing the same task or procedure. Right. Right. And so the reimbursement varies depending on whatever negotiated rate or whatever they're offering which doesn't make any sense because, and I think this is where some of the variable costs and expenses come in as well, because it's hard to, if you don't know one side of the equation, how are you supposed to address the other side of the equation, right? Credit yep. debt. If you don't ever know what you're going to get reimbursed, it's hard to, to, to look at your costs, especially if they're variable costs. So. Uh, yeah. It makes it difficult for, for everybody involved. Exactly. I mean, operations, right? I mean, the, this, the tremendous piece 
that you are required to do from from a chairman's perspective and then working with your counterpart in operations, right, the operations lead, um, it makes it difficult to try and get a grasp or a hold on that because of those variables. Right. So just, you know, some of the discussions we've had as a, an institution are monitoring the um, rate, the percentage of the patients we see with Medicare and Medicaid and versus private insurance. You know, a change of one to two percent in the numbers, you know, flips our um, our uh, institution, our, our um, group from, right. you know, positive to negative. Yeah. So, you know, that is the reality. You know, we, we have to look at those things. Yeah. And that's, a again, another one to two percent. And. Oh, you think that's minimal, but you're, it's a difference between uh, ha- having revenue or having losses. Right. right? Exactly. And, and by department, which is which is what one of the ways that you're that you're evaluated. Right. So as a as a department chair, um, you know, I'm running my little company. Yep. Now, fortunately, it's within a big company. So when I screw up, I've got some padding. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it does mean that we as a group and as my department, you know, I'm stressing over how much, you know, we're making um, from various sources. Right. I mean, it's not just patient revenue or an academic medical center. So right. we do research trials. You know, there's costs related to those that we need to cover. And then we get reimbursements for those, whether they're from, you know, federally funded trials or from pharmaceutical trials, which are critical to do. Right. That's new knowledge. Absolutely. And that's what attracts um, my faculty to GW University. You right. know, if they wanted to see patients exclusively, well, they could go into private practice and see more and make more money. But. We also want to participate in research and, um, you know, understand diseases better. And we're not, you know, dependent exactly on the situation. We're not fully reimbursed for that. And then, oh, by the way, we are teaching those medical students who, um, you know, we get a certain amount of pay, but not at the, the level that, um, you know, counters what we could have made had we been seeing patients at that time. Yeah. And I think that's where you're unique because your impact, you know, is threefold, right? You want to make an impact because there's certainly ways of making impact through research. I mean, I think that that goes without saying Um, when you can mentor and teach the next generation of physicians, right? Anyone who gets to teach and mentor takes that very seriously because you can make an impact on not only the not only the industry, but someone's lives, right? You could be a mentor for someone for the next 25 years as a result of what you taught them, right? And, and the relationship you built. Um, and then the patient, uh, you know, and the interaction with the patient and taking care of your patients. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's the uh, challenge of the academic medical center because you're torn in those kind of those three ways. Um, but I think what makes you guys unique and special is that you want to make that impact because you realize that, all three of those things are extremely important to the success of healthcare. Right. And I, I'd say, you know, that's certainly what keeps our faculty going because they are 
doing things that they couldn't do in private practice. They get a great amount of satisfaction from teaching medical students and seeing them develop over four years from individuals that um, have a hard time figuring out which part of the ophthalmoscope to hold. Right. To, you know, being uh, physicians that already are starting to impact patient lives. It's a really cool thing to see. Um, and, and that keeps them going despite all these other pieces of burnout. Yeah. I mean, and I, and that's a really good point. Absolutely. What I, what I was hoping that before we get into the future, but we, we could talk a little bit about what are some of the things that, that you find satisfaction. I think the last one is important because I know your history, you've always been uh, attracted to research and, and its impact, but some of the other things that you feel are keys to your success and your contributions on a daily basis, if you could share that with everyone, that would be great. Yeah. You know, so um, often I try to just kind of sit back and appreciate all the different things I do, which makes it, you know, a very exciting situation. So I can um, sit down with my laboratory and Linda Kushner, who's my, you know, uh, long life colleague um, in research and in life, um, and discuss experiments and the amazing kind of work our laboratory is doing to understand this rare disease, myasthenia gravis. I can then go to the clinic and see patients with this disease, involve them in research studies, or you know, truly make a difference in uh, improving their lives from somebody who's weak, has severe double vision, and really cannot work to a year later, they're, you know, back to playing tennis and doing what they want to do. So it's just really satisfying that way. But then I take another turn and I'm working with a CEO of another hospital to develop a program or working with my outstanding stroke doctors to develop a comprehensive stroke center that's, you know, quite frankly, um, you know, the best on the East Coast. That's awesome. So it's, and, and then a medical student walks in and say, you know, I want to be a neurologist. How do I, how, how do I do that? So, you know, it's just the amount of, you know, challenges and differences and, you know, accessing different aspects of my skill set is what, um, you know, makes, makes the job fun despite, you know, challenges. Right. Well, that's that's good to hear. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the future and some of the ideas. And I threw I threw some down kind of in our outline and in some of the things we talked about. You know, I, I'm curious on some of your thoughts about telehealth and, you know, AI and some of the self-monitoring tools, um, you know, how that can affect the EMR and at least feed that into the EMR, perhaps, you know, making notifications. But where do you see, where do you see healthcare in twenty years, and with some of the things that we've been talking about? What do you think has to happen? Well, I think we do have a great opportunity now. Um, medicine, I think, you know, its true leaders are uh, appreciating that we need to use high degrees of 
patient-centered technologies in, in every way, kind of like what we talked about, that the, yeah. the, the patient has their medical record, that you know we're not doing duplicate work when they see each physician, that you know, a, um, you know, a website or a smartphone app is accessed and that physician knows everything that's happened before to that patient. And, you know, we're swiping a barcode to um, allow the patient to, you know, be registered at an appointment. Um, you know, maybe we could develop what this one barber did to, to say, okay, your physician will be ready at 10 o'clock, you know, please go down to the Starbucks that we have uh, available for you and then come on back. At uh, 10 o'clock, we'll text you five minutes before and the physician will be in the room to do it. I mean, you know, I don't think that that is so far. It's, it's not far. It's not far fetched. You know, the, 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 the term I would use is patient centered process design. Right. So those processes yep. that uh, people are going through, whether it be a physician or a patient, but they're patient centered design. So for that example, because, you know, you if you're getting caught in somewhere, a patient brings up three or four things, you know, they just wanted to see you about one thing, but two or three things come up and you're held back that those notifications could be sent to that patient to say, hey, um, I'll be ready in you know 15 minutes. That gives the pa- that gives the patient, first of all, the, the fact that they care enough to tell you that they're getting told that. And it does give them a little bit more leeway to go down and get a coffee or a drink or something to eat or whatever. Right. Uh, and I think that alone has a lot of customer service aspects to it because it's respectful to let them know that so that they're not sitting there, you know, in the waiting room, just trying to guess when this is going to happen. Right. Absolutely. And just, um, you know, you mentioned artificial intelligence. Yes. And I, I, there's there's many aspects where that's going to be transformative to medicine. Just on, on the, the, the very, you know, kind of minimal situation that the, I think a lot of patients may not appreciate, but a, um, a well-designed portal where the patient is inputting their symptoms and their concerns with a you know, the background knowledge of their past medical history. And then that focuses things down to here is the specialist that you should see. So we have, you know, 25 faculty members that, you know, some have expertise in headaches, some in Parkinson's, some in um, stroke. But often patients don't come in saying, I need a seizure doctor. Right, because they don't know. Right. Right. And, oh, and they shouldn't right. be expected to make right. a diagnosis. And they shouldn't be expected to know is, is it right. Right. But artificial intelligence will then, I think, develop to a point that, OK, this is a specialist that you'll be able to see. Perhaps with additional input from the p- physician examination, laboratory testing, then a computerized differential diagnosis is generated. And then the physician says, okay, this is reasonable. This is not unreasonable because then they have the wisdom of their clinical practice. You right. know, I think that's where that the wisdom piece needs to be integrated. And then also, okay, here's the probability that a MRI scan is going to be useful in making a clear diagnosis. 
And then that's going to reduce, you know, unnecessary scanning and unnecessary testing um, to a great extent. So the, one of the things that you were talking about ultimately by utilizing AI is removing waste, right? So the yes. waste of the patient picking the wrong physician, right? Which wastes the patient's time, which wastes the physician's time. So getting that uh, pinpointed uh, first, getting the test and necessary test as opposed to getting multiple tests. Um, all those things can eliminate, streamline those processes, and then everyone benefits because you're cutting costs. It's less painful for the patient and less painful for the physician, and you're going to have better outcomes. Right, and I, you know, going back to this kind of single medical record, you know, that allows also an opportunity for uh, feedback to the physician. So, by what what I mean, you you see the first physician. That the patient, um, you know, ultimately goes to another hospital. You've never seen them, and a certain diagnosis is made. Yep. And that original physician can get an alert saying, "Oh, patient diagnosed with, um, you know, tuberculosis, and not the lung cancer that you thought." Um, you know, that's an extreme, perhaps ridiculous example. But the point being is. Now this physician, who presumably is working hard, and, and they all do, and they're trying to come to the right diagnosis, well, all of a sudden, you know, he or she appreciates, okay, well, this is where I made the mistake. Next time I'm going to do this, um, as opposed to relying on a ridiculous kind of malpractice situation for quality control. Yeah, and, and again, you know, after the fact, right? So you're yes. moving it upstream as opposed to downstream, right? The malpractice is supposed to right behavior that already took place, Yeah, right? Which is not, is not a, a good way of, of fixing a process. So that, that's, an, that's an excellent point. Um, I think also the other point out of that is this whole care continuum, right? Um, patients have, I think most patients at the MFA have like three to five physicians. So how do you address that care continuum? If I'm seeing multiple physicians, making sure that all those physicians are in the loop so they know what's going on. Um, so there is no discrepancies, whether it be meds or diagnoses um, or treatments, uh, so that all those physicians are aware, especially the primary care, of course, yeah, because they ultimately are responsible for that for that patient. But I think that care continuum is where I've seen a lot of challenges because, you know, we talked about the EMR. Well, if you don't have interoperability, if you don't have a way of getting that information transferred and there's gaps, then people are going to be out in the dark. Right. Absolutely. Right? Agree. So what I like to close out with is, do you have anything to, anything you want to promote? Uh, or plug um, right now that's going on uh, that well so yeah so like this, this is um, you know out of left field right so one of the things that um, has kept me sane in the last couple of years is my my wife noticed that I had some free time uh, uh, Sunday afternoons and uh, she also remembered all these little stories I made up when my son, Adam, was growing up. And he, she said, well, you know, why don't you write a book of those stories? So I did. So in terms of promotion, you can go to planetofmagicalfood.com and get some information about my um, children's book, 
Awesome. And certainly uh, purchase it on Amazon. Awesome. And give it a you know a few likes and a few stars. Absolutely. But yeah, it was Great. it was fun. It was completely um, you know something different for me, which you know I think it is important for you know anybody in any profession to find something else to do to let their mind uh, go free a little bit. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of good uh, advice in that in that uh, because. It, it not only it takes the focus away, it takes some of the pressure, it takes some of the stress. It gives you the ability um, to create too outside of what you normally do. So congratulations on that, and uh, you know make sure everyone goes out there. Um, and also, if you want to cross promote this podcast to get more people too, that will that will be awesome as well. Absolutely. Um, but I, I want to you know I want to close out. I'm going to say my little spiel about about DRG, but I want to thank you again. Um, I appreciate uh, you've been very supportive of me since we've been working together and uh, that means a lot to me. And when I reached out to you, I was very happy that you accepted the invitation. So I want to thank you for your time. Um, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoy working with you and I enjoy your insights and we, we do have a lot of a similar, uh, I think a similar views on the world. So thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you. So let me just close out and then we'll, 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 I'll let you go. But uh, lastly, um, as long as I can remember, I've asked why and how come a challenging conventional thinking, which equips me with a unique vantage point or perspective. I think this is one of the things that, that makes me, uh, me. Uh, I can help you unlock your organization's potential to implement the right solution. You always want to ask yourself, you know, what are your pain points? Are you willing to do something different? And are you committed to change? I think this is really important, especially in healthcare. And what are your customers saying? And right, you know, what are the physicians saying? What are the nurses saying? Uh, what are the patients saying? So by providing data-driven analytics to determine the root cause of any issue, I can assist in answering these questions. So also check out my website at www.dynamicrg.com and at Twitter at uh, DRG Info. And always remember and never forget, as Rush from the song Grand Design stated, which is one of my favorite bands, uh, so much style without substance, uh, so much stuff without style. It's hard to recognize the real thing. It comes along once in a while. Thank you. And again, Dr. Kaminsky, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.